Hello and welcome to another episode of Cyberspeak with InfoSec, the weekly podcast where industry thought leaders share their knowledge and experience in order to help us all keep one step ahead of the bad guys. As part of InfoSec's effort to close the skills gap and empower people through security education, I'm happy to announce that we're launching our annual scholarship program this month. Visit infosecinstitute.com scholarship for the full scholarship details. In line with that goal, over the next four weeks, we will be speaking with diverse and interesting women in the cybersecurity industry, including today's guest. Kimberly Sutherland, Senior Director of Fraud and Identity Strategy at LexisNexis Risk Solutions, leads the America's commercial market strategy for consumer fraud analytics, identity verification, authentication, and fraud investigation. She joined LexisNexis Risk Solutions in 2006. With over 20 years of experience leading business strategy and product management, Kim's responsibilities have spanned from building global professional services practices to developing cross-industry best practices and technical standards. Kim is vice chair of the Open Identity Exchange and serves on the board of Women in Identity. She's a graduate of Vanderbilt University and Otterbein University. Kimberly, thank you very much for being here today. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. So uh, to start at the very beginning, how and when did you first get started in computers and security? Uh, Were tech computers and security always your... Uh, main interest or did you move down that avenue later in life? I mean, I definitely see technology as um, an, a way to get to a solution versus the solution. Okay. So from my standpoint, um, I became interested in technology, which then of course became computers and other aspects, just to address information asymmetry. So really, I think from the standpoint when I was in graduate school focusing on public policy, I really started understanding that the disparity between um, individuals and their ability to um, have access to information is greatly driven by the tools that they use Mm -hmm. and the availability of of data and information. Um, And so I think maybe, gosh, 30 years ago, um, that really started becoming interesting to me. Hmm. So, okay. So uh, that's a very interesting subject. Now you're saying, Tell me a little more about that with regard to sort of uh, information accessibility and and who has the means of information and so forth. So I think I came down the path for, you know, um, the world that I'm in now in a very Mm -hmm. different uh, path than just maybe uh, programming and those kind of things. Um, In undergrad, I focused on, um, I was pre-med in human and organizational development. So I really focused on how organizations work. And I thought I wanted to be a doctor at that point, Um, Mm -hmm. uh, as most people kind of have these uh, different dreams of themselves versus what they really do. Um, I decided that I wanted to deal with big world issues. And um, back then, there wasn't even managed care. So access to health insurance was a real challenge. So the people I wanted to serve couldn't even get access to health information or to health care. So I decided to go down the policy route. So I went down, I went to Vanderbilt Institute of Public Policy Studies for graduate school um, and focused on health policy and at-risk populations. And that's when I started understanding things around um, uh, health commercials um, first started, you know, coming on the scene. And how do I look at a commercial and uh, assess whether or not it's accurate or not? Um, how, you know, how do I look at things like you know, WebMD didn't exist at that time. You know, right. so how do I get access to information so I can work with a doctor right. and be able to um, diagnose myself a little bit or at least have uh, accurate information so that I can be on a more level playing field? So it started with simple things like that 
But the answer to all of my issues always dealt with getting better information, getting access to that information, and technology has always been the key. And how did that transition into then going from access to the information to securing the information? Yeah, so I think that when you start looking at data quality, you start also looking at who has access to it right. and how secure is that access okay. and issues around privacy. Um, so I went from a master's and doctoral program in public policy to actually getting uh, later um, an MBA um, focusing on technology management. And mm. that's where I really started understanding more about security, um, privacy, and really the importance of building um, strong uh, ecosystems and, and protecting data. So tell me a little bit about LexisNexis Risk Solutions. I mean, I know personally when I think of the name LexisNexis, I think of the research databases for libraries and for lawyers and so forth. So what are some of the principal areas or specialties that the Risk Solutions arm of the company provides? Yeah, that's a great question. And I actually um, knew first about LexisNexis also from the uh, information standpoint when Right. Before there was Google, that's what I yeah. used to be able oh, to yeah. do my searches. And that was a gold standard. Thing. It was, a, you know, be, the, you know, the one person that you knew who had a LexisNexis account, boy, everyone. Yeah. That's <laughs> took, right. That took was advantage my of them. <laughs> that's right. It was in my law library, and that's what right. I used because I knew that was quality information. Right. Um, but we are a risk sciences company. Okay. Um, we're focused on helping um, organizations uh, use data and analytics to make um, better decisions um, on some real world issues. So again, that's where, um, you know, we're looking at some of the, the most challenging topics, but you're looking at it from a data and analytics standpoint um, and, and building solutions to help our customers make better um, and faster decisions. So what are some of the most recent issues and solutions that you've presided over and worked with? Well, so, you know, we look at issues ranging from um, cybercrime, um, identity theft, um, at the core of everything that we do, it really does focus on um, financial inclusion and financial transparency. Mm. Um, so those two are kind of like the pillars for us. And then from there, all of our um, uh, key areas kind of build from there. So we have a whole practice around fraud and identity management. Um, we have an area that focuses on business risk management. Um, on credit risk decisioning, um, on uh, how we deal with uh, collections and investigations. So all of those areas and really being able to hone in on different markets and um, around the world kind of helps us to um, uh, leverage um, all of our data assets and our, and our analytic solutions to build out models um, and then try to address specific issues that uh, commercial organizations, government agencies, um, and uh, nonprofits even think about. Hmm. Um, two of the topics that uh, you, you mentioned uh, in, in our sort of pre-meeting here that are very interesting to us at the moment at InfoSec uh, are identity proofing and authentication. We, we talk about those sort of regularly on our website. Uh, what mm -hmm. are some of the emergencies of authentication and, uh, you know, and is the news uh, sort of covering these properly? Are they not fully understanding them? What are some of the ramifications of a lax authentication system for your organization? So I think identity proofing is often overlooked. Um, mm -hmm. People think about authentication a lot because it's something that is uh, dealt with every day, right? You right. log into websites, you have to provide passwords, um, you go to airports now and they're starting 
trying to scan biometrics. So right. that whole concept of authenticating yourself or even your phone, right? Your mobile device now either has a numeric code that you put in, something that you're swiping, or a biometric that you're using. So it's, it's really interesting to see how much authentication itself has become a common thing for people to think about. A lot of people think of it as um, a painful process and getting people to start thinking about the importance of uh, having the right person access um, uh, services and, and accounts is a really uh, is a thing that, that I think is becoming more commonplace. But identity proofing is one of those things that I think doesn't get talked about as much. Um, I'd say it's not as sexy to a lot of people, yeah. but it's before. Before I start to give you authentication capabilities, I really need to know, are you the person that you say you are? Okay. Um, and that varies based off of the type of relationship that I have with you. Um, there are times when maybe all you need is my email address. And there are other times where I need to have your name, date of birth, your address, your phone mm -hmm. number, and you know a host of information because that's the type of access that you're going to have in the end. Um, so, so, you know, um, those are the topics we look at. We, we see that identity proofing varies by industry, um, and it also varies by uh, country in terms of what's expected mm. or region. I see. So um, you know, I, when I think of identity proofing as you describe it, I, I think of the times that I have to call my bank and they ask for the name of my first dog and what street I grew up on and all these different things. So obviously finance is one that that does a lot of identity proofing. Uh, what are some industries or, or sort of areas, uh, you know, sectors that could stand to do more of that that aren't doing it right now? So I think that all organ all industries are really paying attention to that much more. Mm. Um, the things that are more um, entertainment driven or um, from more of a social standpoint may maybe have less rigor in their processes. Mm -hmm. um, but there is a, a reason um, to do some form of identity proofing, um, even if it's just to improve the customer experience so that you don't get asked over and over about your mother's maiden name or your dog or all those things. Because right. that example that you gave is actually authentication. It's not identity proofing. Okay. The proofing okay. happened when you open your bank account the first time. Ah, um, okay. They may choose to proof you um, subsequent times, but mm -hmm. you're, every time you want to in, uh, interact with your um, financial institution or the, the company you want to do business with, they shouldn't treat you like a stranger every time you go to access them. Okay. And so that, so, so we care about that. And we also care about all the channels that um, you are interacting with that company. Um, mm -hmm. Because in the past, it, much of our transactions were in person. But that's mm -hmm. evolved over time. Now we are dealing with individuals that are 100% digital. Um, they may only interact with their uh, financial institution via their mobile app or via their website or you know, something in a browser. And so in that situation, the way that you um, proof that identity the first time and the way that you authenticate them ongoing is very different. Uh, are there uh, like, do the issues of identity proofing vary between private and corporate entities and government entities? Are they, do they all sort of have the same problems or, you know, are there sort of specific issues that, you know, large companies, small companies, private, public sector, so forth have to deal with? Um, at the core, the, the situations are very similar in nature. Mm -hmm. um, so whether you're a government agency or a healthcare organization, 
you have a lot of the same issues. Um, what is different is that there are different laws um, and regulations that different industries follow. Hmm. Um, and so it's important to uh, pay attention to those and then work with vendors that can help you achieve those, um, those requirements. Oh, that, that jumps perfectly into my next question here. Um, how do you feel that recent measures such as Europe's GDPR and California's CCPA uh, are going to affect the issues of authentication and identity proofing? Well, I hope that any law that is developed helps to um, strengthen uh, security practices mm-hmm. um, and uh, put organizations in a position to not have more fraud. Um, but the goal of those um, Uh, one of the core tenets of of those two laws was also around privacy Mm -hmm. and um, being able to um, respect the privacy and uh, of individuals and give them and and ask for consent Mm -hmm. is really an important thing. Um, I think that uh, more and more companies are trying to build models that are built on, um, a concept they talked about a lot is privacy by design, that you don't try to add privacy at the end of something, but you went into the process thinking about it early on. Mm-hmm. Um, and to ask for consent um, is only one of those logical things, right? I, I really want to establish a trust relationship with the, the company I'm working with or the agency that I'm working with. And so to build that trust relationship, um, I should consider to ask you, is it okay if I do this? and to give more um, visibility of how I'm going to use that information and to use the information for the purpose that I intended to. So I think that's at the core of those things. Um, and so from a, uh, a standpoint of uh, is this the right thing for a consumer, um, I think it makes a lot of sense. But we have to always make sure we have those carve-outs to address um, privacy or, to, sorry, to address um, security um, and fraud prevention as well. Because as you can expect, a fraudster probably isn't going to want to give consent. Um, So let's make sure that we do things to also um, protect the organization and protect the consumer's accounts and their identity information. Uh, Would there be a possibility of creating something like a parallel track, something similar to a GDPR or CCPA that specifically deals with like identity and authentication? And if so, what would, if you had the sort of magic gavel to do that, what would you sort of put into such a law? Yeah, so I do love public policy a lot, but that is not my job. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I definitely think that um, uh, I would love to be able to give, you know, again, focus on uh, putting the consumer first in the process, Mm -hmm. um, making sure that you are, that the identity, um, identity proofing and authentication processes um, are, are consumer centric, but also protect against fraudulent activity. Um, but in terms of how that would look, um, I would defer to those experts that have really studied that area a little better than me. Okay. Uh, so walk me through your everyday workday with LexisNexis Risk Solution. As a senior director of fraud and identity management, uh, what are some job duties or tasks that you perform every day and what are your favorite aspects of the job? Wow. Um, my team and I spend our day really caring about um, the overall market. So how um, uh, our customers and those customers, again, range from financial institutions to healthcare organizations to uh, delivery services, um, 
and transportation and hospitality, how they are interacting with their end customers, you and me. So my day is a lot about what I do in, in, in my off hours, right? right so yeah. I might need to have access to my bank account so I can look at, at uh, my, my balance or make sure a check with, you know, went through. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then we're thinking, what is the best way to help the uh, banking customer get access to their account in a safe manner? I may need to transfer funds to one of my children who happens to live out of the country um, while they're going to college. So how can we deal with cross-border transactions? Um, I may be watching CNN when I get home or some other news media outlet, and I'm listening about um, the latest thing that passed um, at the federal level in the U.S. or outside the country. And so then when I'm back at work, I'm thinking about what, how do the, the new laws and policies impact our current product portfolio? And how do we modify to be able to align with these new regulatory guidelines? So I work with an, um, the sales team. I work with the product team. Um, I work with our marketing team. I work with a host of support services to make sure that we have the right solutions for our customers. And then I spend the other part of my time listening to customers, right? Yes. understanding what they need, um, understanding what their consumers need, and then thinking about how that translates back to the offerings that we have. So it really sounds like, based, based on what you're saying, that you are really like, it's you're, you're, what you're working on is basically ripped from the headlines. You're, you're seeing you know, real-time <laughs> risk issues that are coming and you can come in the next day and say, all right, this is the next thing we need to do to sort of keep our portfolio fresh. That is the most fun part about dealing with fraud and identity. And any fraud identity professional will tell you every single day is a brand new day for us <laughs> that there is a new issue to deal with. There is no stale issues in fraud and identity. <laughs> fraud and identity constantly evolve. And so you're absolutely right. We don't want to be reactionary. And mm-hmm. so we're always trying to think further out. So a lot of times we're doing a lot of, um, of uh, fortune telling almost, you know, of we're course, trying to guess yeah. where things are going to head. But right. we spend a lot of time looking at, at trends and then how that translates into the future from a fraud standpoint. And a great example is um, a few years ago, the word of the year was selfie. Um, and when that became the word of the year, I said, we have got to get a much stronger focus on biometrics because this is going to be the wave of how we deal with authentication. And that was well before we started using facial recognition in a lot of our solutions. But it just kind of goes back to, again, looking at, at trends, um, because the one thing in focusing with consumers, it's really about what consumers are willing to do. When you work with employees, um, companies can tell employees to do a lot of things that a consumer would just go to another company to find an alternative alternative approach. So we really are paying attention to trends in the marketplace. We're listening. Um, we get our inspiration from things we hear on the radio as we're driving into work, yep. things that we see in the news, or even a a, a sci-fi movie that we watch, you know, on on the screen. So yeah. because eventually we see those things actually happen in in the oh, real yeah. world. Yeah, those are those are going to catch up to us to, to us eventually. <laughs> yeah, or maybe they already have. Or maybe yeah, they're so yeah exactly. they're they're happening and they're gestating somewhere in a corner of the world. So, um, okay. so uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, um, this month we're talking to uh, 
women in the cybersecurity industry and women of color and people of color in the cybersecurity industry. And I just wanted to uh, ask you a little bit about that. What has been your experience as a woman and specifically a woman of color in the security and cybersecurity field? Like what are some specific challenges and setbacks you've maybe had to endure that are not likely put upon men of a similar background and skill set? And how do you overcome them? Right. So I have never thought of being um, a woman or a person of color as a uh, a challenge for me. I see it okay. as one of those great assets that I bring. Yes. Um, so I often look at things um, in a different manner than maybe someone who doesn't have the same background as myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, sometimes people tell me that um, I have a, a mothering mentality, which okay. is quite funny for me, <laughs> but um, I think that, uh, I think in general, um, the, the benefit of having a different perspective um, than maybe all those around me is that it gives me the opportunity to present new ways to solve problems. Mm-hmm. Um, it gives me a different, uh, maybe a more connected view sometimes to our customers who may look just like me. Mm-hmm. Um, because we definitely are seeing a, a big um, change in who sits at the table to make decisions, those buying decisions, um, those key decisions around how companies evolve. Um, and so as those become more diverse, um, the, uh, the vendors also need to be just as diverse. Um, so I, I think that I'm starting to feel a whole lot more comfort uh, at the table. <laughs> oh, that's great to hear. So uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. So what can we do in the tech and security fields to make tech careers more accessible to women? And conversely, uh, I mean, you sort of said it with regards to the problem solving, but how can mm-hmm. we make the tech industry as a whole understand that more women and more people of color in tech ultimately make the entire industry stronger? Um. I think as the problems that we try to solve become more complex, mm-hmm. um, we have to be able to solve those problems in new and in more innovative manners, and that requires different ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that naturally um, uh, organizations are going to have to evolve to be able to add more, more, more women, um, uh, more people of color, um, people from different backgrounds in, ge- in general, right? Yep. So economic um, backgrounds and yeah, absolutely. And even also from a geographic standpoint, yes. um, there may be a way that something's being solved in Israel or Australia or, yep. you know, Singapore completely differently than we've been solving, solving it in the U S and mm-hmm. so it's really important to get a much more diverse perspective, but the way that companies are going to um, need to do it is that we're going to be much more patient in our hiring. Um, it might not mean that we can fill a position in, in two weeks. We right. might need to cast the net broader so that we can get the right individual. And instead of it taking two weeks to fill a position, maybe we spend two to three months to find the right individual that's going to give us that additional asset, um, that additional perspective in that process so that we can better solve our problems for our customers. Um, so, I mean, it does really become a, a financial decision. It's the smart decision to grow a business um, to get more revenue, to be able to address more customers. And you're going to, have to do that, not with everybody being the same. Um, it also means, though, that companies have to invest in their, per- their, their existing personnel to keep them. Yes. Um, so that means mentoring programs. It means um, developing affinity programs when someone needs to have a like individual um, with you. 
Um, I, I said that I went to Vanderbilt University for undergrad and grad school, actually, mm-hmm. and there were very few people of color on campus. And so while, again, I've never thought of um, my, my, my personal background being a limiting factor, there mm-hmm. are times when you can feel like an outsider or feel lonely and, um, when you don't see anyone like you. And so being able to recognize that it's not wrong for light groups to sometimes congregate to share information is, is, you know, it's one of those learning lessons for organizations. It's not bad for there to be affinity groups. It actually helps bolster um, the, uh, the individuals so that they can continue to excel, excel and rise in a company. Right. So I, I think that's, that's worth noting. We, have, we haven't heard that a lot, but I think it's worth noting that this isn't just going to be a matter of, of looking for the right, you know, diverse candidates, but also sort of fostering the culture within the organization in ways that it's more comfortable. And you don't, like you say, constantly feel like you're sort of, uh, you know, alone in a corner or, you know, on a different wavelength or what have you. That's right. And developing effective mentor programs is really important as well. And yeah. it doesn't mean that a female needs to be mentored by another female. Um, it's really, again, helping people grow in their strengths um, and to identify weakness, the weak areas also and grow those. And so maybe I need to be paired with somebody who is a male in the technology area or mm-hmm. a female in the finance area or yep. someone in the legal area. So find out what people's interests are and really help. The, and, and this is something that I guess it's not even limited to trying to address, you know, females and, 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 and people of color. It's for all right. your employees. If you want to retain and grow your, your employees, find their passions and help strengthen them. Yeah. And you can even do a, do a round robin, rotate to multiple men- mentors at that rate. Absolutely. So uh, what tips would you give to women and people of color uh, currently entering the world of uh, cybersecurity? Um, definitely play to your strengths. Mm-hmm. Um, don't uh, feel that you have to have one path that you go after. Again, I, my background started with public policy. Um, I, I entered the technology space by looking at um, consumer empowerment, right? Again, addressing those information asymmetry areas and how do we give consumers access to, to things and let them do more self-service and, and those pieces of it. That's a different approach, but I'm going to play to my strengths. And so um, I went down a path around consumers. Um, I, I think that every person brings um, an area that they're passionate about, and I think that they can build onto that um, and, and really then find others that can see the value in their vision. Hmm. Um, so for companies that are trying to recruit more women and minority professionals, uh, what should they not only do to find these candidates and hire them, but to make themselves more desirable to these professionals that they're trying to recruit? I think we talked a little bit about this with mm-hmm. corporate culture, but um, what, what is, is there a way sort of maybe even at the application process that you can say like, this is a welcoming space. This is, you know, um, we, we are committed to a diverse workforce, things like that. Mm-hmm. I think it's easy to market a company when you're already doing a lot of the right things. So before mm-hmm. you start to tell a great story to, to yes. prospective candidates, do the right thing in, internally within your company. So That's a couple right. of things I'm really proud about with LexisNexis Risk Solutions is that we have um, CARES hours. So we give employees a set of hours that allows them to spend time doing work in the community. 
Mm. Um, that's something that appeals a lot to millennials and yep. definitely to women as well, but to all of our employees. Um, it's amazing to see um, the, the types of things that people do in their off hours. Um, some people maybe work with scouts. Other people work with seniors. Um, people work around the world with different um, groups. And, and to know that your company is um, really focused on trying to ha have a connection with the community and allowing their employees to try to help others, it's really a powerful thing. Um, so that sells, that sells itself. If you explain, that's what, what you deal with. Um, having flexible hours. Um, everybody's work day can't start and stop at the same time. Um, life kind of gets in the way, right? Mm -hmm. So being Absolutely. able to try to give your employees enough flexibility that they can work within some standard hours, but maybe if they need to work a little later on some nights and, and uh, leave a little earlier on others to address things around child care or whatever, or yep. senior care, because many people are not just dealing with children, but also taking care of their parents. Absolutely. Um, those are important situations. Um, and then also showing that you care about their thoughts from a professional standpoint. Hmm. And so um, showing the types of things that innovation in, in your company um, can do is, is a really uh, a great opportunity to try to uh, attract females and all, again, all employees. I mean, those are yeah. the types of things that people care a lot about now. Um, what are you doing with the community? Um, what are you doing to um, show that I need some type of work-life balance? Yep. And then how are you helping to foster my interests? Yeah, this is uh, this is the next step after the uh, obligatory free foosball or you know in the in the break room and stuff like that. This, these are yeah, these are much are the, these are much better incentives, I think. Absolutely, those are the easy things, right? So right. having <laughs> beer in the fridge and foosball that yeah. might get a few people, but that's not going to keep your employees, and that's right. definitely not going to help me grow professionally. So Absolutely. I think those are, those are the, the key items, you know, that I at least see um, when I talk to others. So as we uh, wrap up today, um, what are some security issues pertaining to identity and authentication in 2019 and beyond uh, that you are currently watching out for? Like you said, you're watching the news every night. So what's on the horizon for 2019? Yeah, so I think the two things that I would you know, definitely focus heavily on is the intersection between digital and physical identity. Um, most of us have very strong digital presence uh, now, right? Yeah. We, we have social media accounts. Um, we access things with sometimes our email address and you never even know our name. Um, we use our devices for everything. Um, if you are missing your device, you know, it's like you've cut off an appendage. It's the end right? of the world, so, yeah. That's right. So being able to understand somebody's digital identity and how that intersects with their physical identity is where I, we're seeing a lot from our, and physical identity, I mean things like, you know, standard things that we think of, name, address, my driver's license, um, all of those types of things. So how do those things intersect? Because we, most companies care about working with a real individual. Um, I just saw a thing on the news yesterday about um, fake, um, um, fake likes on accounts um, mm. and um, uh, fake evaluations of services. And so being able to tell if that is a bot or if that's a human yeah. is really important. And, and that intersection between physical and digital identity really helps us get there. So that's one topic. Um, the other thing is omni-channel, that um, as a consumer, I want to be treated um, in a way that makes sense when I'm interacting with an organization in person 
Um, and I don't, and I, there, might, there might be a different way that you need to treat me when I'm online, or maybe if I buy something online and I want to return it in the store, that you don't put me through some very rigorous process when it's the same identity. So trying to help our customers deal with omni-channel solutions is really important. Um, those are the two probably big issues that um, I think that we're focused heavily on. Um, and I guess the third one would just be around how can we limit the amount of uh, friction in the process to make um, that consumer experience as positive as possible um, while you know helping to grow uh, other companies' uh, bottom line, right? We want to we want people's or top line actually. We want their revenue to go up, and yep. we want to make sure that we are giving um, the best customer experience possible. So eliminating friction where where it's necessary, you know, and only putting it where it's necessary. So if uh, our listeners want to learn more about LexisNexis Risk Solution, where can they go? Well, we have a great website, so that would be LexisNexis. Risk.com. We have some great conferences that we attend. Um, we hold our own, our Digital Identity Summit, and we have a lot of digital identity meetups around the world. Hmm. So I would say that we're trying to have a way to interact with us in, in the way that best fits um, our customers' um, um, preferred channel. Um, we also have, a, I think, a YouTube channel they can go to, and um, we have a LinkedIn page. So just, you know, um, we would love for, you, for anyone to reach out to us. Uh, you can definitely connect with me on LinkedIn or in the other uh, manner. Fantastic. Kim, thank you very much for joining us today. This was, this was great. Thank you. It was a pleasure to get to spend a little time with you. And thank you all uh, as well for listening and watching. If you enjoyed today's video, you can find many more on our YouTube page. Just go to YouTube and type in CyberSpeak with InfoSec to check out our collection of tutorials, interviews, and past webinars. If you'd rather have us in your ears during your workday, all of our videos, including this one, are also available as audio podcasts. Just search CyberSpeak with InfoSec uh, in your favorite podcast app. See the current uh, promotional offers available for podcast listeners and to learn more about our InfoSec Pro live boot camps, InfoSec Skills on-demand training library, and InfoSec IQ security awareness and training platform, go to infosecinstitute.com slash podcast or click the link in the description. Thanks once again to Kimberly Sutherland, and thank you all for watching and listening. We'll speak to you next week.